Samuel chapter 8 and is where we left off. And while we're turning there, just uh, uh, for some of you that come just on the Sunday evening, be aware of the chili cook-off this coming Saturday. And you can get details at the table in the fellowship hall after the service. Mm-hmm. First Samuel chapter 8, our journey through the scriptures. The last time we were together, we studied how the uh, Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, got a little more than they had bargained for, were eager to return it back to the children of Israel, which they uh, did. And then Samuel, in, in uh, chapter 7, after a period of about 20 years of, of kind of silence there in the historical record, uh, uh, Samuel grows into adult life from being a young boy ministering there in the area of the tabernacle with Eli. And he begins his public ministry by calling the nation of Israel to repentance, to turn back to God with all of their heart, and also to meet with the Lord and uh, to offer sacrifices to him at Mizpah. And uh, as they gathered as a nation there in Mizpah, the Philistines, who were their oppressors at the time, uh, looked at it as potentially an act of war against them. They attacked the children of Israel. God rose up and supernaturally gave victory to the children of Israel over uh, the Philistines. And chapter 7 closed by describing to us kind of the annual record or, or, or the, uh, the record of uh, Samuel's annual kind of circuit that he went through as a judge of the nation. Uh, he was headquartered in his hometown and... Uh, uh, there in Rama, but he would make a circuit of other cities in the region and judging different cases according to the word of, of God there. And one of the reasons it's kind of important to get that little recap and all is by the time we get to chapter 8, verse 1, uh, Samuel's an old man. So a lot of time has uh, gone by and him just kind of judging and overseeing the spiritual uh, condition and direction of, of the people of Israel. And uh, so we come now to chapter 8, and uh, Israel's uh, kind of famous, this section of Scripture, because Israel now demands a king of, uh, of Samuel. And so we pick it up in chapter 8, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old, so a lot of years have passed now, that he made his sons judges over Israel. And so... They were apparently helping Samuel in kind of judging and overseeing spiritually the nation. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in the city of Beersheba, or the region of Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways, and they turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So apparently these couple of young guys were... Um, afflicted with the same uh, tendency toward the same temptation, and that is they had a love of money. They could be offered a bribe uh, when they were to judge a case on what does the Bible say on this case as a, uh, a defendant and a plaintiff would bring their case to the judge. The judge was to just, uh, without any partiality, judge the case according to the Word of God. Uh, these two guys, you could get to them with a bribe, and the Word of God wasn't the supreme issue in, in the decision-making uh, the bribe was. Now, that's just a terrible corruption 
uh, of any kind of a justice system, but especially when you're claiming to represent the Lord, which is something higher than even our justice system is kind of a secular society or secular government. So that's what they, uh, they were, were doing. Now, um, it tells us there in verse 3 that his sons did not walk in his ways. So that tells us that Samuel uh, raised his uh, two boys without um, hypocrisy. Sometimes uh, children will uh, have been raised in a home that claims to be godly and they see so much hypocrisy that they reject the whole thing and go do their own thing until God breaks through in their life and says, this is not about your parents or anyone else. This is about you walking with, with me no matter who does what or doesn't do what in, in the world. But Samuel, they had not run into any hypocrisy in, in his life. He had walked the talk. And, uh, but they had decided that they were not going to follow after his example. I think that happens very, very often. There's a tendency for us sometimes to look at uh, the uh, children, and especially the adult children, of uh, someone, and when they go sideways, to look and say that's a reflection on how they were raised or the spirituality of the parents. But that's not necessarily true. We're, we are called by God to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, but they do become adults and they make their own decisions, and then their life becomes a reflection on them. And so that's exactly what they did here. Now, Samuel did have a fault in all of this because, and he kind of follows his mentor's uh, failure. Uh, his mentor was Eli, um, who had a couple of sons that were uh, not so great themselves as, as priests, and that, that was their office as priests, not as judges. And uh, the failure that Eli uh, in his life was when he did recognize that they were not keeping up to the biblical standard, he should have uh, yanked their chain. He should have taken their, their title away from them and taken their responsibility away from them and uh, got them out of, out of the way, no longer, you know, uh, you know, trying to... Because at that point... Uh, and Samuel does the same thing here. What he should have done is once these boys went sideways like this, he should have just said, I am publicly uh, removing you from this position. You do not have my endorsement. I don't want to be associated with what you're doing, and I don't want my integrity before the Lord to be affected. He didn't do that, and, and he should have done that. Uh, one of the great tests any of us will face in our ministries and in our service to the Lord, and that might be being a pastor and a missionary and evangelist or, or whatever it might be, or it might just be in our personal lives as Christians, is when we have to make a decision or a choice between obeying God's Word and His standard and, and then uh, making that stand within the family unit. And that's one of the hardest decisions that a person will make, but Samuel should have stepped up and he should have chosen God and God's word and his standard over his sons. And he didn't do that. And it does create a crisis here. And the children of Israel were going to do what they were going to do anyway. But it gave them the opportunity to uh, ask for what they wanted to ask for. So then all of the elders of Israel, they gathered together. The leaders of the nation, they came to Samuel at Ramah, his hometown. And they said to him, look, you are old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all of the nations. Essentially, they looked at Samuel and they said, you're old. We've got to face facts here. Uh, 
You're, uh, you're not going to be around much longer. And when we look at your boys uh, who are coming up behind you, there's nothing attractive uh, to us in them. So we're not interested in going back under Eli and his, his sons and the corruption of the priesthood and being led by corrupt leaders. We don't want any of that. So we don't see anything good coming up behind you in your gene pool. And so what we want is a king. So they demand a king. And they give the reason for it so that uh, we want a king to judge us like all of the nations. And so that's what they wanted uh, to do. They wanted to be like all of the other nations that uh, surrounded them. It was, it was God's perfect will that the nation of Israel would be a theocracy, uh, that they would be uh, ruled by God or governed by God. In fact, the name Israel means ruled by God, governed by God. It wasn't God's perfect plan that they would ever have a, a physical king, in a, a merely man-king, uh, in, their, in their history. He's going to move into a permissive will with them, as we'll see in just a moment. But that wasn't his, uh, his perfect plan for them. His, God's idea was that the nation of Israel would individually, there wouldn't be a need for this gigantic governmental structure, but that the individual members of the nation of Israel would so love God and obey God that you wouldn't have to put this whole kings and cabinets and uh, formal law enforcement and, and uh, uh, the you know, armies and navies and all this kind of stuff all put together, but that these people would just walk with God, obey God, and be led of the Lord, that that, that would obviously for them turn into, as it does for any of us, it would turn into such a prosperous and a blessed life that all of the nations of the world would look over at the nation of Israel and say, what are we doing with kings? And so instead of the nation of Israel saying, we want a king like all of the other nations, the idea was if they just walk with God, the rest of the nations would say, let's jettison these kings and let's find out who the, how these people are doing it. But they never were willing to be a theocracy, not for any length of time at all. They were never willing to give God that place where they would obey Him with that kind of completeness to allow the fullness of God's desire to bless them, to be demonstrated to the rest of the world. And so they are now wanting to throw off the theocracy and replace it with a monarchy, but they never gave the theocracy a chance. And in their history, they would look back on th that chapter in their history and say we got rid of something before we ever found out what God would do through that theocracy, through His perfect will. There have been a number of times through the years and I don't do a lot of counseling anymore and I, don't, I do very little marriage counseling these days, but I used to do a lot in the early days and the reason I don't do a lot these days is usually it requires one, two, three, four, five appointments. And, and it's just hard in my schedule for people to get in consistently to see me. And I end up frustrating. They end up hating me in addition to having trouble with one another. And I don't need the aggravation. So, uh, and I'm not helping anybody. And candidly, there are better counselors on our staff than me. So I'm, I'm a good one appointment guy. So I can do the other two and I like to do it. So I don't want to 
you know, miss, miss paint it at all. But sometimes the couples would come in and the whole thing's just a mess. Two Christians and the whole marriage just a mess. Any way you want to look at it. Top to bottom, front to back, it's just a mess. And they're both wanting to just j- junk this thing, this marriage, and go on about their business and the whole thing. And I'll sit there. And one thing I am good at, and you, all you hear me in this room is just talk all the time. But I am a good listener. And I like to listen. In the counseling appointments, I think the less I talk, the better the appointment is. So I want to hear what people are saying. So I really give people, if i got an hour, I'll let them talk for 55 minutes. I mean, I'll direct it as I have to. Listen, I'm telling you all my story about counseling. But, but I'll listen to the whole thing as, as it's going on because I want to understand where they're coming from. And so many times I've spoken to a couple and said, you know what, you're about to throw something away, which you can't throw away biblically, by the way, but you're about to throw something away where God has never been given a chance in this marriage. And if you throw it away, you will look back for the rest of your lives and you will look back and say, God, and you'll realize, we never gave God a chance to bless this marriage. We never gave Him our obedience to work with. I said, you won't want to live with that. Because the day will come where you'll grow closer to the Lord and more intimate with Him and you'll want to obey Him even more. And when you think back upon that chapter, it's not going to be pleasant for you to think about if you just throw the thing away. And so this is what they were doing. They never, the nation of Israel, never gave God a chance to make that nation what He wanted it uh, to be. And so they demand a king. Now, God, in his foreknowledge and in his permissive will, the Lord knew that ultimately the nation of Israel was going to demand a king, and he made provision for it in the law. He spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, uh, and he spoke of Sarah and the fact that she would be uh, kings of peoples would come from her. So there would be kings among the Jews. Genesis chapter 35 God spoke to Jacob and spoke of the fact that kings shall come from your body. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, the law of Moses, God declared, when you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all of the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, you shall set his king over you. You shall not set a foreigner over you who is not not your brother. And so God knew that ultimately they would uh, demand a king, but this appears to be a premature demand for a king. Now, the advantage is that sometimes we think that only teenagers are uh, terminally affected by peer pressure. We are all affected by peer pressure. And, and so they looked and said, we want to be like everybody else in the world. I am so tempted to talk about some matters of fashion today that people will look back on with tremendous embarrassment. This is, this is a man speaking who was groomed by the 70s and the 80s, and the whole spandex. I never wore spandex, by the way. I want to make that clear. I ride a bike and I don't wear spandex. So anyway... Um, where were we on all of this thing here? So, all right, so there were advantages here. They, they, so they, they wanted to be like all of the other nations. And one of the things that was attractive to them about uh, all of the other nations uh, in terms of the government that they were asking for, which was a monarchy, is that they viewed it, uh, the advantages of it as being uh, a stable form of government 
and also the advantages of, of centralization. So they looked, and, and as they were looking at the judges in this theocracy, it seemed like God would raise up a judge here and a judge. And if you had a king, you know, you got a king, and then his son becomes the next king, and the son becomes the next king, and the next king, and the next king. And at least you know what you got, uh, you know, coming down the road. So it had that stabilization. There also was the... Uh, the attractiveness to them of the centralization. At this point in time, when they would be attacked by the Philistines, they were these 12 kind of disjointed tribes. And so they saw how uh, if we got attacked by the Philistines or needed to unite quickly, uh, it would be handy if there was a king who had the authority to rally the troops. And so uh, that, that's what they, uh, they, they liked. They didn't like what looked like an, a, a haphazard kind of... Uh, uh, uncoordinated thing, though it wasn't under the Lord. And so the thing displeased Samuel when they said, uh, give us a king. So this uh, re- Samuel's immediate reaction was one of uh, displeasure. And uh, so he prayed to the Lord. And probably his displeasure was twofold. Number one, he absolutely viewed this as a rejection of the people of him. He had been a great judge, a great leader, and the fact that they would want to move out of being ruled by a judge that God had chosen to be ruled by a king, he took it personally. The second thing that caused him to be displeased was the fact that he felt it was uh, dishonoring to the Lord. He viewed it, it just as God is going to uh, uh, view it, as a rejection of the Lord as, as their king without ever having been, as I said, obedient to the Lord to see what he might have made of them as, as a nation. And so he seeks the Lord in prayer. He prayed to the Lord, kind of informed the Lord of these things. And the Lord doesn't need to be informed, but you're going to talk it over with him. And the Lord said to Samuel, and that's interesting, he said, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. And then he gave the reason. For, for is a reason word, for they haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Very important in our capacity as Christians or in whatever kind of title we might have in the body of Christ or all, when we live for God and we make a stand for God and we speak for God, very often the rejection that we're going to experience is not a rejection of us, who we are personally and, and our you know, makeup or this kind of thing, but it's a, it's a rejection of the God that we represent and the God that we obey. And uh, and, be, and so that means for us as Christians, we're just going to have to get used to rejection in this world. Because if you're watching the same world that I'm watching, it doesn't look like they're getting up every morning eager to glom onto God and walk with Him. So that means that this rejection of, of God, even in religious circles, when that happens in our lives, we have to stop. And, and the downside is, is that we're experiencing the same rejection that God is experiencing the, uh, the upside of it is that people are recognizing us to be representatives of the Lord. But all of this is real. And uh, so, you know, we don't, we don't take it too personally. And uh, the Bible says it'll, this kind of thing will get uh, worse and worse as the Lord's return 
uh, approaches. So they've rejected me, Samuel. I know you're, you're bummed out about how, you know, how you view this thing, you know, in terms of what it says about you, but it's not really about you supremely. It's about me. And according to all of the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, and with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, now they're just doing it to you. You get a little taste of, you remember they had that kind of king for a day or whatever kind of, you get, you get a little taste, God for a day. You're getting a little taste of what I put up with uh, all of the time. And uh, that happens too as we serve the Lord. We're close to his heart and we see, ooh boy, that's Lord, wow. And uh, that's a blessing and, and uh, it, it also hurts too. And now therefore God said, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will rule over them. And so he was to heed their voice, uh, but, um, and, and God was going to appoint a king for him, but he says, I want him to go in with eyes wide open. You, I want you to forewarn them what this king is going to do to them uh, when, when he becomes the king, and that they're going to, one day they're going to uh, regret uh, their decision to demand a king over following God. And so Samuel told all of the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king, and he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take, and if you're a, a circler in your Bible, you're going to see that phrase over and over again in this thing. You want a centralized government? You want a man-centered government? You want a monarchy? You want people ruling over you? It takes a lot of government structure to replace God. And you're going to find that that government's a lot hungrier than God. And that government's going to take. And so the phrase is repeated over and over again. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and will reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I want to introduce to you, God is saying, uh, the uh, first uh, biblical mention of the draft. So this isn't a voluntary army anymore in Israel. This guy is going to draft your sons into his military. What will he do with your daughters? He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields. What will he do to your property? He'll take the best. Government wants the best. The best of your fields. They want the first fruits. You have, maybe you haven't noticed that. They'll take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants, taxes. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men. He'll take your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and then... Uh, most notable of all, and you will be his servants. Now, I don't need to tell you, you live in the United States of America today. There is a certain line, I mean, government is a God-ordained thing. Nothing wrong with government. 
Its principal purposes is to maintain law and order, protect its citizens from attack from within, that's the police force against crime, and to provide us with uh, protection from attack from without, against being attacked uh, by a, a, a neighboring country or army. And so those are the principal responsibilities of government. And there's a place where government needs to have its laws and its rules and its taking up to a point. And then there's a point that a government reaches, and once it goes beyond that, it is no longer serving the people. It is now serving itself. And now you begin to, we'll begin to notice once a government has crossed that line, that what is happening there is that the government is expanding at the expense of personal freedom. That's what you get with man-centered government unless it gets stopped. And so this is something we're in the middle of at the moment in our nation. And uh, there's uh, quite a bit of, uh, of, of fury and you know, flurry over the whole thing right now. But this is what it leads to. They never had to go to Togo's and bring God a sandwich. He was never hungry. They didn't have to buy him clothes. They didn't have... I mean, it, they, it was the lowest maintenance. God, I mean, He didn't need any of this structure. He didn't need any of their food. He didn't need any of that that all of this other thing needed. So he just, God says, I want you, just tell them what they're getting into. And you will cry out in that day. Because your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. In other words, they're going to really regret the day that they uh, rejected the Lord for a human king. And nevertheless, the people, they couldn't be deterred. They refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but we'll have a king over us. That, as a reason word, that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what we need. Someone we can see that can do this instead of this, all this faith. And Samuel heard all the words of the people and he repeated them in the hearing uh, of the Lord. And so the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. So he assured them of the fact that a king is coming and you can be dismissed and go return to your cities confident of that fact. And then here is the king that was chosen for them. There was a man we get introduced to, uh, to Saul here in his background, the first king of Israel. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. This was Saul's dad. So the first thing we know about Saul is that he comes from a very wealthy, powerful, prestigious family. That is always advantageous for a politician or for a leader. That's the kind of family that he had. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. 
the best-looking guy in the whole nation. Who's the guy that always wins those things where they, he's married to the... You got it. He gets a free cup of coffee after the service. This guy is better. I mean, imagine, and all of us have to imagine, being the most handsome person in the entire nation. This guy is super good looking. That never hurts in politics either. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of his people. We talk about being head and shoulders above someone else. That's what he was physically, very tall of stature. And so he would come into a room, and here's this guy that comes from a prominent family, and he's the most handsome man in the whole uh, land of Israel, and he comes in, and he's he's taller than anybody by uh, by, uh, head and shoulders. So he walks into a room and immediately commands respect on on a physical level related to a king. He's got everything working for him physically. He has spiritual problems. They're going to undo uh, all of that. Now the donkeys of... Now listen, you know, you you watch our presidential elections all of the time and and, uh, even, even governors and senators and this kind of thing. Even in the business world, they talk about um, the average income of people who are taller in life. They get promoted faster. Uh, They make, on average, more money than the average person. There's some kind of a psychological thing about someone who's a little bit taller. Before Israel is done, they are going to uh, lament the day that they wanted Saul to be their king, and the next election, they'll be looking for some squatty, ugly guy to be their king. Give me some squatty, ugly guy that's spiritual like crazy. Forget all this other stuff. I won't take that any further in our current environment. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So they lost some donkeys. And Kish, his father, said to his son Saul, Please take one of the servants with you and arise and go and look for the donkey. So he sent by his father to go find the donkeys. So they're not wealthy enough that they can just ride off donkeys that get lost. And so he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of uh, Shalishah, but they did not find them. And then they passed through the land of Sha'alim and they were not there. And then they passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. Now this tells us a lot about Saul too. Tells us he was an obedient son. Tells us that he had a concern for the, uh, the good of the family. There's been a family loss here, and it's my responsibility to step up uh, into this. And so he's humble in, in, in obeying his, his father. He's, he's selfless, and he's putting his family before himself. Nobody wants to go out there looking for, for donkeys. Very faithful, very, very hardworking. He didn't just, like, head over to Ceres and back. He roamed all over the place looking for those donkeys. And, and so, a lot to commend in him. So he's got some character in there too. He's not just 
a, a face, a model. And when they had come to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. So he's tenderhearted. He's, he's sensitive, related to his dad. We've been out here looking so long, number of days, for these donkeys. I'm concerned my dad's going to be worried that we've been lost or some harm has come to us. Again, there's a lot to commend uh, in him. So let us go. Perhaps, and, uh, and, and then he said to him, the, the servant said to Saul, Look now, there's a, there is in this city a man of God, and he's an honorable man. And all that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there, and perhaps he can show us the way that we should go to find the donkey. So this is the suggestion that the, that the, the servant makes. It's a guy that God talks to and reveals stuff to. Before we leave, let's see, maybe he'll tell us where the donkeys are. And then Saul said to his servant, he, he hesitates for a reason, but look, if we go... To see this prophet, what shall we bring the man? And uh, for the bread in our vessels is gone, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? So he, he apparently you would bring uh, some kind of a small token of uh, uh, or an expression uh, of of respect in the form of money or some food or something like that when you when you would approach the prophet. And the servant answered Saul, and he said uh, again, and he said, Look, I have here at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Now, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer, for he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. He was called a seer because he could see into the spiritual realm supernaturally by God's calling. And then Saul said to his servant, Well said, that's a great idea. You got a little bit of money, that won't be disrespectful to him. Come, let us go. And so they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up to the hill, up the hill to the city, they met some young women going out to draw water. And they and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered and said, Why, yes, he is, you big handsome hunk of a man. If any of us went up to a group of girls and said, hey, what about, get out of here. So he comes up, he gets an answer right away. Yes, there he is, just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he came into this city because there's a sacrifice for the people today on the high place. And as soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. And now, therefore, go up, for about this time you will find him. So that's where you can find him. Hurry on, and you'll run right into him. And so they went up to the city. As they were uh, coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, what they don't know, and God's working both ends of this thing, and, uh, and so they're going to look for Samuel, and they have no idea that God has spoken to Samuel the day before, that God is bringing uh, the next king of Israel to him and will identify him the next day. So God's working both ends on this. And the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people 
um, from the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. And so this is one of the really beautiful, beautiful biblical example, one of the finest biblical examples of the uh, two spiritual gifts uh, that are mentioned in the New Testament, the spiritual gift of word of knowledge and a word of wisdom. Those are spiritual gifts that God gives his people. Every one of you as Christians has a supernatural spiritual gift given to you by God. And one of the gifts that God gives is a word of knowledge. A word of knowledge is a fact that God reveals to you that you could not otherwise know except that God revealed it to you. And the word of knowledge here in this passage is there in the beginning of verse 16. Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. That was a supernatural fact he couldn't otherwise know. Now the word of wisdom is what he should do in the light of that fact. And the word of wisdom is you shall anoint him, commander, and so forth. And a word of wisdom is a supernatural revelation from God in what to do with a fact or a situation that we're in or a fact that God has uh, given to us. And, uh, and so here is this uh, thing where you've got the word of knowledge, this is going to happen, and you say, great, what... Here's this guy from the land of Benjamin's going to come and see me tomorrow, but without the word of wisdom, it's like, so what do I do with him? Shake hands or uh, what? And so the word of wisdom comes along and says, all right, here's what I want you to do. You anoint him, and he's going to become the commander of my people, uh, Israel. And so when Samuel saw Saul, uh, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. That is our king. And then Saul uh, drew near to Samuel in the gate, and he said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, invites him to uh, the meal, and tomorrow I'll let you go and I'll tell you all that is in your heart. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't be anxious about them, for they've been found. Now Saul never said anything to him about donkeys. So again, you've got a word of knowledge that God is giving to Samuel here, and he speaks to uh, to Saul about the fact that he's looking for donkeys. They've been found before Saul ever informs him that he's, he's looking for donkeys. And so what God is doing it, it, through Samuel is he is um, giving that word of knowledge. It's supernatural. And when uh, Saul hears what this guy hears from God and realizes, how could this guy know? Nobody's told him, only me and my servant know about this. And uh, so what it would do is it's kind of going to boost his confidence in the fact that what this guy hears from God and what he says comes to pass. So God is uh, fashioning or strengthening Saul's faith for the next revelation that God is going to give to him through Samuel, and that is, you're going to be the next king. And I, and I think that God is faithful to do that in our lives, where He develops our faith and, 
And sometimes we'll look back and God calls us to do something or some big thing happens in our life and we realize, oh, He's been preparing us, preparing me all along for this. And so God's leaving His fingerprints all over the place and kind of developing and nurturing Saul's faith. And then here is the revelation uh, from, from Samuel. And on whom is all of the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house? In other words, you are the king everybody's waiting for. Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite, the smallest of the tribes of Israel? Listen, that's the last tribe you're going to find a king, and I think you've got a wrong address here on all this. And my family is the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. Why do you sp- then do you speak to me this way? And so he is... Uh, not comfortable with this revelation here and thinks that Samuel is, uh, you know, mistaken. Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. And there were about 30 people. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. And so the cook took up the thigh in its upper part and set it before Saul. Man, I mean, the whole thigh of an animal set before you. Whew. And Samuel said, here it is, what was kept back. It is set apart for you. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you since I said I invited the people. And so Saul ate with Samuel that day. And so Samuel puts him in a position, seats him in a seat of, of honor, and then gives him the choicest cut of meat, consistent with the fact that he's going to be the future king. And when they had come down from the high place, they went into the city. Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. And so apparently uh, Samuel invited Saul to spend the night there, hospitality related to his house, on top of the house. All the, so many of the roofs are flat top there. It's an extra room up on the top of the house. They probably talked into the evening. And then they arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day when Samuel called to Saul on the top of the house saying, Get up! that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us. He wanted privacy to talk with Saul. And so the servant went on ahead. He said, but you stand here a while, that I may announce to you the word of the Lord. And then Samuel took a flask of oil, and oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and he poured it on uh, Saul's head. And then he kissed him, and he said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? In other words, here's a private anointing of Saul as the, ne- as the first king of Israel. The oil, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and a symbol of the fact that it just as this oil's been poured on your head, God's Spirit's going to come upon you and give you all that's necessary to be successful uh, in your calling. And when you have departed, and, and now Samuel gives him uh, three, again, kind of word of knowledge, three events that are going to take place in his immediate future here, things that are going to be happening him, to him uh, right, right away, so that when they happen to him, that he will recognize that 
that this call of God, this message that God has given Samuel to Saul, that he's going to be the next king, that God isn't kidding about it, that he is the chosen king. And so God's just like giving him this confirmation before he hears the news, after he hears the news, and he kind of knows what Samuel or Saul needs to, is an encouragement to be faithful to his calling. And so... When you depart from me today, you're going to find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at uh, Zelzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? So this is what's going to happen to you. It did happen to him. Confirmation. He said, then you're going to go on forward from there, come to the terebinth tree of Tabor, and there three men are going, are going, uh, there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. They will greet you, give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. So confirmation number two. And after that, you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen when you have come there to the city that you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with stringed instruments, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp among them, and they'll be prophesying. So these are, got to like these prophets. They're prophesying and, and all, and well, they want a little music. So they got the stringed instrument, a tambourine, and a flute, and a harp, and just enjoying themselves in the Lord. And Samuel said, when you come and encounter that, then the Spirit of the Lord will come, and notice that word upon, will come upon you. That's baptism with the Holy Spirit language, Acts chapter 1 verse 8. The Holy Spirit coming upon us to empower us to be witnesses to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So it is supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to be faithful to God's call upon your life. So you're going to run into these guys, and then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will, be pro- and you will prophesy with them. And then here is one of the greatest descriptions of the baptism with the Holy Spirit or the upon experience of the Holy Spirit in all of the Bible, and you will be turned into another man. That is the power of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. The baptism with the Holy Spirit. It's the power to transform and change a life. And we need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. One of the things that we talk with the people that are praying up in front after the service. If somebody comes up to you and they ask for prayer and and clearly they're born again and they love the Lord but their life is completely marked by defeat. There's no uh, recognition of power. They haven't been changed into a different person in the way that is what the Holy Spirit talks about. Ask them, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Have you asked for that upon experience to be a witness to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth? The hardest two places to be a witness for God in this world is at home and on the other side of the world when nobody else knows you. And it's the power to live for Christ anywhere God puts us in the world. In the slums of Bombay, 
in Modesto, anywhere he wants to put us, anywhere in South America, North America, Europe, Asia, anywhere, this is the power to live for Christ in that environment. The baptism with the Holy Spirit does change us into a different person. And that different person is the person of Christ. You've never been baptized with the Holy Spirit. You need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. God is eager to do that, and He does it for the asking. I, the reason I get excited about it is I, I, tr- I tried a portion of my early Christian life to live this Christian life in my own strength. Failure. Frustration. Romans chapter 7. Why doesn't this work for me? And then to experience the baptism with the Holy Spirit and to realize this is real. This is something that God knows that we need as His children in this world. And to realize it really does bring, He does bring things through this experience into our life that turns us into something altogether different. Supernatural and it's real. And let it be that when these signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. Just roll with what the Spirit is doing. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come up to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. And so it was that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, that God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that very same day. And when they, had come, uh, when they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him. He prophesied among them. And it happened when all who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? So they were shocked. He had shown no kind of inclination uh, in in this direction before, but God was so strong upon his life. And then a man from there answered and said, But who is their uh, father? And therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? So when something would happen to a person that was completely unexpected. You never thought that they would become this or do this. People would uh, say, well, you know, I mean, is Saul also among the prophets? God does unexplainable things. And so it became a proverb. And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. And then upon returning home, Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where'd you go? He's kind of fishing around a little bit, thinks, you know, a little suspicious about what might happen. And he said, well, we went to look for the donkeys, and when we found that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, well, tell me, please, what did Samuel uh, say to you? So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had uh, been found. But about the manner of the the kingdom, he he did not tell what Samuel had said. So he's discreet uh, in that. And then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you out of, uh, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. So he's recounting, God is recounting to the children of Israel of the fact that you have rejected me in, in the face of 
my absolute unfailing faithfulness to you. God's going to make sure that they understand that's what they've done. But you have today rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations. And you have said to him, No, set a king over us. And now therefore present yourself before the king, before the Lord rather, by your tribes and by your clans. And so here's how uh, Paul, I mean Saul is uh, publicly chosen and identified as the king. Uh, Samuel declares, Now therefore present yourself before the Lord by your tribes, by your clans. And then Samuel caused all the tribes of Israel to come near. And the tribe of Benjamin was chosen of the twelve. And when, uh, when he caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was then chosen from among the family. Now there's a problem here because when he declared that Saul was the king, nobody could find him. So when they sought him, talk about a reluctant king, when they uh, sought Saul, they couldn't find him. They said, Saul, they've got the next king and he's already hooky. Nobody Nobody can find him here. So it's kind of an embarrassing moment. And therefore, they inquired of the Lord... Uh, further and said has the man come here yet you've identified Saul as the king we can't find him and the Lord answered and said there he is hidden among the equipment or among the stuff so here here's Saul he's trying to hide from uh, the call of God upon his life yeah it's pretty it's really hard to hide from God it's really hard to run from his calling really really you ever play hide and seek with a three-year-old you go in the backyard, you got a tree. You say, all right, I'm going to count to 25. You hide, and, I'm going to, and then I'll come and find you. Count to 25, open your eyes. You go to take a step, and you fall right over them. They never moved. So you can't hide from God. No matter where you hide, it's just like you're in His living room, unfurnished. So there's no hiding. God said, listen, He's hidden among the equipment. And so they ran, and they brought Him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of them uh, from his shoulders uh, upward. And so uh, this, uh, again, the physical characteristics of, uh, of, of Saul here. There are a lot of people, and this is important with Saul, there's a lot of people who look at uh, Saul, and uh, here he is, he's hiding himself, and, and they view it as an evidence of, of his humility. And, I, and, and perhaps they're right. Um, I'm, I'm personally not inclined toward that view because of, of what happens to Saul after this as his life kind of plays out. There's a very, very fine line, and there's a very, very real line between humility and insecurity. Uh, They're very different in that humility is born out of a concern for others. Humility is selfless at its core. Insecurity is born out of a self-consciousness, out of a self centeredness, a fear of failure. If I fail, what will people think of me? 
And as we're going to see in the coming chapters, Saul was a leader who really allowed his insecurities to dominate his life and his decision-making. Now, this insecurity in the face of God's call upon our lives is not at all uh, uncommon. But we must never allow our own sense of inadequacy or our own self-consciousness or our own insecurity to keep us from being obedient to what God calls us to do. And it's a great tendency to do that. All the way through the scriptures, when God would call men and women to serve him, their first reaction, the face of what God was calling them to do, was this consciousness that they were in and of themselves not up to what God was calling them to do. A fear of failure. I won't be successful. Because they're looking and saying that I'm I'm going to have to do this in my own strength or in my own ability, not realizing that God will add to our lives what's necessary to be successful. In, in that. So it's kind of the first reaction that we can have to, to God's call uh, upon, uh, upon our lives, that, that hesitancy, and, and it's normal. But what we can't allow to happen is to allow that insecurity or some fear of failure to keep us from being obedient to what God is calling us to do. And I just want us to ask in the privacy of our own hearts, is there some insecurity, is there some fear of failure that is dominating any of our hearts here tonight? Well, God has clearly called you to do something in His name, to step out in faith, and it isn't humility that keeps you from doing it. It is a self-dominated motivation of insecurity an unwillingness to be thought a fool for Christ, to be thought foolish by our family members and by our friends, to be obedient uh, to the Lord. It's so important that we don't give into it, but obey the Lord. Not only for the good of others who will be affected by your life as God uses you, but for your sake. I'm convinced that one of the reasons that God called Saul into the ministry the way that he did as a king is he realized that in Saul he had an unbelievably large project on his plate. And that Saul was so messed up in a lot of different ways that it was going to be being brought into this kind of dependence upon God and being forced to grow in your godly character in ways that you would never do it if the ministry and the service to God didn't force you to grow by the day and by the week. And he's, and he's going to take step in and become the king, but he's not going to be willing to let, allow God to make those changes in his life. He needed to be a king more than Israel needed him to be a king. You need to obey God's call upon your life more than God needs you for what He wants to do through your life. It's for your sake. It's for your development in growth, in, in life. And so, it all comes down to obedience, I think, in this calling. 
And he was, uh, I think, far more than just uh, humble here. Uh, he didn't want to be obedient to this. And we're going to see his, his insecurities are just going to derail the whole thing before it's all said and, and done. And it's a, a flaw in his life, an early flaw that he did not... Uh, we're all flawed. But he does not allow God to work that area over in his life and to change it and make that into something else. And, and uh, any of us who refuse and say, God, I'll, I'll obey you here, I'll obey you there, but I will not allow you to change me there. Usually that there will be the thing that will destroy us. We'll end up in heaven someday, but it will destroy our effectiveness and our Christian witness. And Samuel said to all of the people, Do you see whom the Lord has chosen? That there is no one like him among all the people. And so all of the people kind of confirmed Samuel's choice here. And they shouted, Long live the king. And then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty from the law of Moses. He wrote it in a book. What was expected of kings laid that up before the Lord. And basically what Samuel was doing here was communicating to Saul and the nation, God has given you a king, but this king is not to take the place of God in your life. God is still God. This is just a king. Don't lose, lose sight of that. So Saul also, uh, he, he sent all the people away, Samuel did, every man to his house, and Saul also went to his to home in Gibeah. Valiant men went with him whose hearts God's, God had touched. Another blessing that uh, Saul had, good, strong leadership around him. But some of the rebels uh, said, how can this man save us? They despised him. They disrespected him by bringing him no presence. Welcome to public life, Saul. And, but he held his peace. Uh, God got him up. God would have to keep him up. God didn't need, he didn't need to defend himself. Listen, in terms of God's calling on your life or on my life, if the devil can identify us as a person who will run around and put out every fire that started related to us, then that's all we'll ever do is put out fires about what's being said about us. Well, the old saying is, is if we'll take care of our character, God will take care of our reputation. And early on, Saul was willing to do that. He was, God had called him. He's going to take care of his, his character. God would have to take care of his reputation. There's a lot, uh, again, a, a good characteristic of his life. Now, all of that sets the stage for what comes next. And as we leave Saul here, uh, we see that God has blessed him really with everything that was necessary to become a great, great king in Israel's history. And he's going to end up a, a terrible, terrible failure. Came from a good family, called by God, anointed by God, given a new heart, turned into another man by the Holy Spirit coming upon him. He was humble, he was attractive, he was gracious, he was kind. And yet his life is going to end in, in complete failure. And the reason for it is going to be very, very instructive, I think, to each of us. Let's stand together and if the worship team would come forward, that would be great.